Section 9 of the Critique of Dogmatic Theology and Investigation of the Christian Teaching by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Leo Weiner. Chapter 6, Part 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 6 Such is the doctrine about the Trinity in the radical Christian dogma, as expounded in fifty pages. On this dogma are based, and with its refutal are refuted, the dogmas about the Redeemer and Sanctifier, and every one of the dogmas which refer to the house management of our salvation. I reject this dogma. I cannot help rejecting it, because by accepting it I should be renouncing the consciousness of my rational soul and the cognition of God. But while rejecting this dogma, which is so contrary to human reason, and which has no foundation either in scripture or in tradition, I still find inexplicable the cause which has led the church to profess this senseless dogma and so carefully pick out the imaginary proofs to confirm it. That is the more surprising to me since that terrible blasphemous dogma, as expounded here, can apparently be of no use to anyone or in anything, and since it is impossible to deduce any moral rule from it, as indeed is evident from the moral application of the dogma, a collection of meaningless words which are not connected in any way. Here is the application of the dogma. Number one, all the persons of the Most Holy Trinity except the common attributes, which belong to them according to their essence, have still other, especial attributes by which they differ from each other, so that the Father is indeed the Father and occupies the first place in the order of divine persons, the Son is the Son and occupies the second place, and the Holy Ghost is the Holy Ghost and occupies the third place, although by their divinity they are entirely equal among themselves. To each of us the Creator has given, in addition to the properties which we all have in common by our human nature, special properties, special talents, by which our special calling and place is defined in the circle of our friends. To know these faculties and talents in ourselves, and to use them for our own benefit, and for the benefit of our friends, and for the glory of God, so as to justify our calling in this way, is the unquestionable duty of each man. Number two. Differing from each other in their personal properties, all the persons of the Most Holy Trinity are, nonetheless, in a constant mutual communion. The Father is in the Son and in the Holy Ghost. The Son is in the Father and in the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost is in the Father and in the Son. John fourteen ten. Even thus we, with all our differences, according to our personal qualities, must observe the greatest possible communion and moral union among ourselves, being bound by the unity of essence and the bond of brotherly love. Number three. In particular, 
Let the fathers among ourselves keep in mind whose great name they bear, even as the sons and all those who are begotten from the fathers. And keeping this in mind, let them see to it that they sanctify the names of father or son which they bear. Through an exact performance of all the obligations imposed upon them by these names. Number four. Finally, keeping in mind to what disastrous results the Eastern Christians have been led through their arbitrary reasoning on the personal essence of God the Holy Ghost, let us learn to cling as fast as possible to the dogmas of faith of the teaching of the Word of God and the Orthodox Church and not to cross the eternal boundaries which our fathers in faith have set. Thus it remains incomprehensible why this dogma is confirmed. Not only is it senseless and not based on scripture or on tradition, and nothing comes of it. In reality, according to my immediate observation of the believers, and according to my own personal recollection of the time when I myself was a believer, it turns out that I never believed in the Trinity and never saw a man who believed in the dogma of the Trinity. Out of a hundred men and women among the people, not more than three will be able to name the persons of the Trinity, and not more than thirty will be able to say what the Trinity is, and will not be able to name the persons but will include among them St. Nicholas the Miracle Worker and the Mother of God. The others do not even know anything about the Trinity. Among the masses I have not come across any conception about the Trinity. Christ is called the God-man, as it were, the eldest of the saints. The Holy Ghost is entirely unknown, and God remains the incomprehensible, almighty God, the beginning of everything. Nobody ever prays to the Holy Ghost. No one ever invokes him. In the more cultured circles, I have also not found any belief in the Holy Ghost. I have met very many who very fervently believed in Christ, but never have I heard the Holy Ghost mentioned except for the purpose of theological discussion. The same was true of me. During all those years when I was an Orthodox believer, the idea of the Holy Ghost never entered my mind. The belief in and definition of the Trinity I have found only in the schools, and thus it turns out that the dogma of the Trinity is not rational, not based on anything, is good for nothing, and no one believes in it while the Church professes it. In order to comprehend why the Church does that, it is necessary to investigate the further exposition of the Church and I proceed to do this. It would be a useless labor in the consequent investigation to point out all the errors, contradictions, senseless statements, and lies for the investigation of the first two chapters about the most important dogmas has sufficiently demonstrated to the reader what the methods of reasoning and the expressions of the author are. I will now give a short exposition of all the dogmas in their general interrelation, giving the pages and pointing out the chief propositions which are adduced in confirmation of the dogmas. I do this in order from the general connection of the whole teaching to elucidate the meaning which may not become evident from the separate passages. 
I repeat what was in the beginning so as to proceed consistently. There is a God, and He is one. Article 13. He is a spirit. Article 17. He has an infinite number of attributes. His attributes, as revealed to us, are as follows. Article 19. His attributes in general, unlimitedness, self-existence, independence, unchangeableness, omnipresence, eternity, almightiness, the attributes of his mind, Article 20, omniscience and all wisdom, the attributes of his will, Article 21, goodness, freedom, holiness, truth, justice. God, in addition to that, has persons. He is one and three persons. The persons are independent and inseparable. Proofs from Holy Scripture, Articles 26, 27, and 28. All three persons are equal to each other, though some have thought that one is more important than the others. But that is not true. They are all equal. The Father is God, the Son is God, and consubstantial with the Father. There are adduce disputes which prove the opposite, and proofs from Holy Scripture which prove the opposite, and discussions about one God not being subject to another, but that both have equal power. The same is true of the divinity of the Holy Ghost. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost have personal properties. Article 32. Many controversies are cited about the personal attributes, and finally there is an exposition of the dogma that the personal attribute of the Father consists in this, that he is not generated, but begets the Son, and produces the Holy Ghost. Page 263. A. Entirely in a spiritual manner, and consequently without any suffering, without any sensuous secretion, because the essence of God is immaterial and simple. B. He begets and produces since eternity and for eternity. For there has been no time when the Father has not been the Father of the Son and the producer of the Holy Ghost, just as there was no time when he was not God. And what has never begun cannot be said ever to end. C. He begets and produces in such a way as only he alone knows, and he who is born from him and proceeds from him, but of the creatures none can comprehend it. D. Finally, beginninglessness and causelessness are exclusively appropriated by God the Father only in relation to the other persons of the Holy Trinity. But by their divinity, the Son and the Spirit are also beginningless and causeless, or rather, the Holy Trinity is co-beginningless and co-causeless. Pages 263 and 264. 41. The Personal Attribute of God the Holy Ghost. Page 267. A controversy of over fifty pages about the question from whom the Holy Ghost proceeds, whether from the Father and the Son, or from the Father alone. The dispute is settled by an analysis of external proofs. The proofs are as follows. Who, putting his hand on his heart, will have the courage to confirm that we, who believe that the Holy Ghost 
proceeds from the Father have deviated from the truth? Who will dare in all conscience to rebuke us for observing a heresy? If we are rebuked for an error or a heresy, it would be just as right to rebuke for it all the holy fathers and teachers of the church, the same as to rebuke the ecumenical councils, not only locally, but together the whole ancient church, the same as to rebuke the word of God itself for error and heresy, who, we repeat, will be bold enough to utter such blasphemy. Then follows a moral exposition of the dogma of the Trinity, which was quoted before. One cannot help but come to the conclusion that the simplest, clearest application of all the preceding controversies is that one must not speak any foolishness. Above all, one must not teach what nobody can understand, and more important still, one must not impair the chief foundations of faith, love, and charity to your neighbor. Then follows Division 2 of God in His General Relation to the World and to Man, Chapter 1, of God as the Creator. God has created the world. Here is the way the Church teaches about it. Unquestionably, God is the Creator of all visible and invisible creations. First, He produced, through thought, all the celestial powers, as exalted psalmist of His glory and created all that mental world which through the grace given to it knows God and is always and in everything devoted to his will. After that he created out of nothing this visible and material world. At last God created man who is composed of the immaterial rational soul and the material body so that from this one man thus composed it might be seen that he is the creator of both the worlds, the immaterial and the material. Page 351. After that, as always, follows a controversy. Some assumed that the world was eternal. Others admitted its emanation from God. Others again taught that the world was created by itself, by accident, from the eternal chaos, or from atoms. Others taught that God has formed it from co-eternal matter. But no one could rise to the concept of the production of the world out of nothing by the almighty power of God. Page 352 All these opinions are refuted in Article 55. God created the world out of nothing. 56. God created the world not from eternity, but in time, or together with time. Page 360. The farther one reads the book, the more one has to marvel. It looks as though the problem and purpose of the book consisted in keeping out rational comprehension, not the comprehension of the divine mysteries, but simply the comprehension of what is being said. I can imagine a man who admits that God created the world. Well, what more do you want? He does not care to inquire any farther into the teaching. No, they demand of him that he should recognize that the world is created, not from something, but from nothing, not from eternity, but in time. On this point there is controversy, 
and it is proved to him that the world was created in time, or more correctly, with time. Prescience, or predetermination, were in God before existence. It says, at one time the world did not exist. That is, it says, if God's prescience be admitted, that when there was no time, God knew the future. And when it says, at one time the world did not exist, and time did not exist, it says that there was time, for at one time means time, when there was no time. And when it says that God created time, it says, since the verb is used in the past tense, there was a time when God created time. 57. The world was created by all three persons. This is proved by Holy Scripture and is expressed thus. The Father created the world through the Son and the Holy Ghost, or everything is from the Father through the Son and the Holy Ghost. However, not in the sense that the Son and the Holy Ghost perform some instrumental and slavish service at the creation, but that constructively they perform the Father's will. Page 365-58 The Manner of the Creation The world was created, one, through reason, two, through willing, and three, through the word. God created the world according to his eternal ideas about it, quite freely, by the mere beck of his will. The plan of the world creation has been predetermined since eternity in his ideas. The free will determined to materialize this plan. The beck of his will actually materialized it. Particularly fine is here the word ideas. 59. The incitement toward the creation and its purpose. God created the world for this reason. We must believe that God, being good and all good, though all perfect and all glorious in himself, created the world out of nothing for the purpose that other beings, glorifying him, might partake of his grace. Page 370. The purpose of God is glory. Proofs from Holy Scripture. And then, 60. The perfection of the creation and whence evil comes into the world. The question is, whence comes the evil? And the answer is that there is no evil. And the proof for this is as follows. God is a supremely all-wise and omnipotent being. Consequently, he could not have created the world imperfect, could not have created a single thing in it, which would be insufficient for its purpose and would not serve for the perfection of the whole. God is a most holy and all-good being. Consequently, he could not be the cause of evil, either physical or moral. And if he had created an imperfect world, it would have been so, because he was unable to create a more perfect one, or because he did not want to. But both assumptions are equally incongruous with the true concept of the highest being. End of the article. Page 376. There is no evil because God is good. But how about our suffering from the evil? What sense was there in asking? How can there be any evil when there is none? 61. 
the moral application of the dogma is that it is necessary to glorify god and so forth end of section nine